0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Pod Marshall Today we have Tam Hunt, who developed the General Resonant Theory of Consciousness, and it's basically how vibrations create consciousness. Now, as I've been studying vibrational patterns and how they affect biology, it's all very, very fascinating how it all kind of intertwines together. And we talk a lot about that today. You know, Some of the experiments that he's doing um, in regards to vibrations, he's also trying to figure out, you know, if... The brain has that vibrational frequency. Um, do other organs have vibrational frequencies? Um, and frequencies and brain waves, they all coincide. Um, and it affects our day to day. It affects mental health. It affects physical health. Um, just the very concept of vibrational frequencies. And so we, we dive into that a lot in this podcast. And I hope you enjoy. Thanks. All right. We should be recording. Um, is it Dr. Hunt? Is that right?
1: Well, I'm a jurist doctor, but not a PhD, which means I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer, a strange lawyer who is involved deeply in um, neuroscience and philosophy of mind at this point.
0: Okay. So I was just telling you, I came across your research uh, across my travels <laughs> and vibrational resonance. Uh, I first came across it with Schumann's resonance and basically how the earth has a heartbeat and that you know human beings have a heartbeat. Have a, uh, Resonance as well, and they are kind of intertwined to some degree. Uh, vibrations are kind of everything. Um, so, first, tell me how you got into this topic. Yeah.
1: Um, so, we've developed a theory called the general resonance theory of consciousness now over the last decade or so. And, um, you know, there's kind of three main axioms which we like to kind of use to relate the theory. Um, the first is that all things resonate. This is just you know physically true. There's always some frequency at which things vibrate or resonate. Um, everything is just sitting there, kind of wiggling back and forth a little bit at a certain frequency um, above absolute zero. Uh, the second is that all things have some associated um, consciousness, and that certainly is not a widely accepted view. Uh, it's increasingly widely accepted, and this is known as panpsychism. Um, the third is that things that resonate in proximity to each other, uh, will achieve a combined consciousness. And this is our solution to what's called the combination problem. And so basically, the universe is a universe of things and processes vibrating and resonating at certain frequencies. And when they come together in biological forms, over time, that matter complexifies into complex structures like us. And we hypothesize that that process of evolution is not only a process of evolution of the physical form, but also of the associative mind. And so as the biological form complexifies, so do the associative minds. And so we see a progression of complexity of mind through the last four billion years of evolution on this planet.
0: So vibrations, are. you're saying, okay, you just said a lot. (laughs) So let me see if I can break this down a little bit. Um, Vibrations. The mixture of them, how they interact with each other, uh, form consciousness. Is that what you're saying?
1: Things that resonate in proximity to each other will, under the right conditions, achieve a combined consciousness through that shared resonance.
0: Now, is that the local consciousness that we've heard others tell about?
1: yeah i'm talking about the, the you know the awareness that you have you know somewhere in your in your head behind your eyes between your ears that you feel um, you are a locus of consciousness, and a locus is determined by your sensory perceptions, your embodied form, that biologically evolved form you inhabit and what we're saying is that process of biological evolution and complexification is not only a process of complexification of form and behavior. It's also a process of complexification of consciousness.
0: Okay. Now, how did you start with this idea? And you're, I'm guessing you have a uh, uh, a partner in this. You'll, you, you've mentioned a couple of times now that you guys have developed this theory over the past 10 years. Um, how did this first come to be that vibrations could uh, be uh, a quantifiable consciousness.
1: Yeah, so my partner in crime in this has been uh, for a while now, uh, Professor Jonathan Schooler at UC Santa Barbara. He's a professor of psychology and has had a long-standing interest in the philosophy of mind, and he researches very different, you know, areas in psychology. And um, I've been working with him now for over a decade. And People have often asked me, where does this idea come from? And I basically came up in philosophy, um, reading widely since my teens in philosophy. And I came across eventually the work of Alfred North Whitehead and David Ray Griffin. And um, basically Whitehead is the most, you know, widely known proponent of what's called process philosophy. And process philosophy looks, as you can imagine from the name, Uh, The world as being uh, nothing but process. All things flow. So you might have heard of Heraclitus. He's an ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, He's the one who said all things flow. Never stepped in the same river twice. And this was meant to be, um, this became over time um, the opposite of the view that nothing changes. That it's all a static universe and the appearance of change is an illusion. So, process, philosophy, whitehead, and our theory definitely is in a tradition of, well, change is all around us. The world is nothing but change. Anywhere you look, you see change. So it's all process. So when you look at that worldview and try to explain the stability of the world around us, and explain the evolution of you know matter and energy and life and consciousness, um, Whitehead, continuing in a tradition from Heraclitus through to the present. Uh, through Locke and Spinoza, et cetera, talks about the basic atoms of the universe um, ontologically, meaning you know the basic level, the metaphysical level, are actual entities or events. An event is the basic atom of process, which means it's stuff in time. So it's not just a lonely electron that is static and never changing. The electron is, in Whitehead in view, a process, it's a series of events, electronic events in each moment that are different in each moment. So that actual entity is basically the, the notion we began with, that I began with, in trying to explain human consciousness. And Whitehead and Griffin, you know, did a lot of work in this area, so it wasn't like we had to create some whole cloth. There's a great book by Griffin called Unsnarling of the World Knot, which is his kind of explanation of the Whiteheadian view of the hard problem of consciousness, the mind-body problem. What they hadn't done and what we're trying to do now in our work is to empirically ground that work. So um, a lot of scientists consider philosophy kind of fluff and unnecessary and not evolving, not changing, not empirically grounded. But we disagree. We think that every theory of consciousness has some implicit or explicit philosophical grounding. And we're making it explicit, whereas many have it just implicit. And it makes it hard to challenge the basic assumptions if you're not making those assumptions explicit. So in our work with GRT, we're trying to empirically ground the theory and turn it from what is, you know, a philosophical philosophy approach into a scientific approach so we're basically ramping up experiments to test the theory and to really make it um, you know a testable and fully scientific theory rather than being interesting speculations on the nature of
0: consciousness what are some of those experiments that you're doing just out of curiosity
1: yeah we're, we're starting to um, ramp up some work uh, looking at um, interorgan synchrony so there's been a lot of work done on cerebral synchrony Between different, um, frequencies in the, in the brain. And so for example, you have, um, using EEG, which is, you know, the traditional cap you put in your head and you measure the brain's electrical fields and you have a hierarchy from Delta, Theta, Alpha, Beta, Gamma of defined frequencies with, you know, certain central frequencies and certain patterns in those frequencies. So this is certainly, um, part Of our work in terms of looking at those frequencies and their relationships, and we, we speculate our uh, working hypothesis is that the, the primary place of, for consciousness is, in fact, those electrical fields, electromagnetic fields in the brain. Um, but it's not just the brain, it's also the body, it's a whole united system. And what we're doing to extend the work of uh, people looking at the brain's fields and their resonances is looking at interorgan resonances between, for example, the brain and the stomach and the brain and the heart, because the stomach and the heart have a ton of neurons too. The stomach has a system called the enteric brain, which is about half a million neurons, sorry, half a billion neurons. Um, the heart has far fewer neurons, about 40,000 neurons, but they're quite important because the heart is rather important, and there are, in fact, relations already we know from prior work between the heart and the brain, and the stomach and the brain, and we're basically the first to be looking at the combination of those two paired resonances and seeing if there is in fact a relationship across all three of those systems. We think there is, because the body is a, you know, a large nested hierarchy. We already know that the um, enteric uh, base rhythm, which is a .05 hertz, meaning basically a 22nd rhythm, it um, does, in fact, entrain to some degree the brain's alpha waves. Uh, we also, does entrainment between the heart and the brain's waves. So we're going to be looking at all three of those to see how that system meshes um, as a kind of a triplet. And over time, we'll look at other things too, like the spinal cord, the uh, retina, uh, genitals, a lot of nerves in the genital area, of course. Um, and see how the whole system works together. Because we're basically saying, look, it's not just the brain. Obviously, the brain is part of a very complex system. Even if the brain is the primary source of these EM field phenomena, it's not the only thing going on. We know it's other um, places that um, influence the whole system. And so we're looking to kind of flesh out that what we call the resonome, which is you know the, the overall system of resonant frequencies.
0: Wow, that is super interesting. So, we know you mentioned um, the different brain waves that occur. Uh, we also know that each brain wave has a corresponding uh, factor of stress upon the body. So, you know, the higher the hertz, the different the brain wave, the more stress or anxious a person might feel. Are you finding that that could be a possibility with something like the gut biome or the stomach where different Levels of frequencies are going to correlate to higher levels of stress and anxiety?
1: I don't know the research you're talking about in terms of higher frequencies and indicating higher stress in the brain. Um, so I can't really answer your question there. Um, what I have seen, and it certainly I, I'm no expert on this literature yet, um, looking at meditating subjects, typically speaking, um, advanced meditators are going to show. Gamma synchrony, um, and I know the data is definitely, I think, still um, far from being fully fleshed out. I think, if anything, high frequencies are associated with more advanced meditators, typically. But, like I said, that's definitely, I think, uh, an area of you know ongoing research.
0: Hmm. Um, Schumann's resonance. Have you heard much about that?
1: A little bit, yeah, yeah. We, we haven't done any work in that area, but we have. Um, Kind of examine some of the literature, and you know, we're, it's very early days for us in this. But I mean, Schumann resonance is about um, an eight hertz resonance, so you know, um, eight per second um, resonance frequency associated with the Earth's geomagnetic field. And um, there is interesting parallels between that resonance and human EEG frequencies. Um, Eight is basically high theta, um, and there are also some kind of secondary and tertiary frequencies associated with associated with that Schumann resonance at the second and third multiple, so around sixteen, twenty-four, approximately, um, and those seem to be reflected in the the brain's dominant frequencies. Um, so again, you go from delta theta alpha beta gamma and these are not arbitrary people often will look at this initially and like oh it's just names you given these frequencies but you actually look at the central frequencies of those rhythms and you will often see particularly in times of demanding tasks um, certain nested hierarchical relationships and it's usually a binary meaning a, a two to one relationship so for example Um, delta at 2.5, may often nest with theta at about 5, kind of a low theta, uh, with alpha at 10, beta at 20, gamma at 40. And these numbers do move around a little bit, you know, and even the names will move around a little bit in terms of where they cut off the the range for those frequencies. What doesn't move around, though, is the fact that there seems to be um, a functional hierarchy there in terms of the brain using those harmonic relationships to actually convey information through the brain and body. And so what we're looking at is, it's not just these direct nerve connections that convey information, these biophysical pathways. It also seems to be the case that we have these resonances at certain uh, binary frequencies that convey information through the brain and the body. And what we're thinking, and this is, again, the speculation at this point, is that the, the brain's and the body's rhythms probably evolved in the way they did uh, because they were influenced early on in you know, very early biology from billions of years ago, literally, by the background EM fields. And so it's thought that the um, Schumann resonance is probably a bit stronger um, earlier on in the uh, pre-Cambrian period. So it makes sense, given that these fields are ubiquitous, that in the early days of biological evolution, you're going to have some kind of mirroring of these background resonances and so it's probably the case that the reason we have these defined you know central frequencies of the bands we observe is probably because of that background resonance it's all one connected system you know not just us our bodies but us on our planet us in our universe etc uh, and so as to what that means um, functionally we have seen some research already suggesting that if we leave this planet and don't actually create artificial fields that mirror that background Schumann resonance, we get pretty out of whack in terms of circadian rhythms, sleep cycles. And so very likely as we got to Mars and the moon, et cetera, we're going to have to basically have background EM resonances that mimic the Schumann resonance in order to maintain our, our circadian
0: rhythms. That's interesting. Well, the whole reason I've been kind of diving into this topic, it seems to me like the missing link for a lot of questions I've always had. Uh, You're like, what environments, Um, the environments in which you live have a direct impact on your mental health. Urban environments typically have uh, worse mental health than ocean environments or natural environments. Um, Storms, lightning storms. Um, I remember one time I was on the way to the beach actually, and for some reason, like, I don't really have anxiety, never really had it crazy, but there was a really big electric storm during that weekend. And the entire way there, I had this crazy like anxiety, high functioning anxiety that uh, was kind of de- debilitating, which is not like me at all. And <laughs> apparently, that a lot of people around the world were having that same rally in my geographic area, were having those same feelings. And then somebody popped up and said, hey, look, there's a spike in something called Schumann's Resonance. And mm-hmm. enough, it was one of the biggest in quite a few years as far as spike goes. Um, mm. And so that started me questioning, okay, what does electronic frequencies, uh, magnetic frequencies, and then what we know as Schumann's resonance, earth's heartbeat at 7.8 Hertz have, and how does it affect biology? And it seems like, like you're saying, everything is connected. And mm-hmm. we're, we're always, we're always so quick to uh categorize and box up all these spheres of life into these separating categories, but that's not what's the case. The case here seems to be at least a factor of, uh, resonance and vibrational frequencies have a massive effect on biology. Um, so have you done any research or looked into how urban environments affect frequencies, um, upon the brain and stomach and things like that?
1: Yeah, there's a lot out there and, um, I'm just finishing, um, Robert Becker's book, The Body Electric, written back in the 80s. It's a really good overview of this whole field. Um, it's a bit dated, of course. It's you know, almost 40 years old now. And so I think the research in there should be considered suggestive and not definitive. And the more recent view is that the background fields produced by our high-tech society don't have a huge influence on us. That's kind of the more recent view. My intuition is that it's probably not right. I think probably there's a lot more impact than we currently let on. You know, I've not delved into the whole 5G debate. I'm not suggesting that 5G is gonna be, you know, the end of the world kind of thing. But but I mean, based on this um, you know, acknowledgement that our technologically produced EM fields do have interaction, then of course the higher power you put out there, the more impact you're gonna have. Um so I think there needs to be kind of a renewed focus from a, you know, a hard-nosed scientific point of view as well as those impacts may be. And one point that Becker makes in his book, which I think is a, is a key one to consider moving forward, is that a lot of the studies that purport to find limited to no impact from particular uh, fields on human you know, psychology look in the lab at one isolated uh, field effect, one particular frequency, et cetera. When, of course, in the world around us that we live in now, it's a chaos of field effects, which will sometimes combine and create you know, new field effects, new frequencies. And so to actually examine those real-world effects, you have to consider the real world, not a lab-isolated artificial phenomenon, and then say, look, it doesn't do anything. Uh, We do know certainly that, you know, high voltage uh, field effects like on their massive wires are not good for your health. So don't live, you know, under a power line. And that's, of course, not done anymore. People do have setbacks from those power lines. But the notion of what is safe, I think probably should be looked at again. Um, You know, in terms of cell phone use, I I don't know for sure. It is certainly some suggestive evidence there that um, if you use a cell phone a lot against your ear, uh, may have some negative effects, including even cancer, but have not delved into that research a whole lot, so I don't have anything definitive to say. But I do recommend Becker's book um, very strongly. It's really a great uh, summary of all the research and super interesting. Um, life's work.
0: In the 80s, you said?
1: Yeah, early 80s. I think in maybe 83, he wrote it. Yeah, he's actually He was an orthopedic surgeon who did a ton of research on um, EM field phenomena in uh, biological development and regeneration of limbs and like salamanders, et cetera. Um, but then his last chapter in the book is devoted to looking at this issue of, you know, EM field pollution, what I call it. And um, another great book too, not on the topic of EM field pollution, but kind of fleshing out the, the EM field uh, phenomena and, you know, resonant frequencies is um, a more recent book by Douglas Fields, a great name to be writing in this area, called um, Electric Brain. And it's basically a summary of all the research to date in the last hundred years on how the brain seems to be primarily, you know, an electricity producing um, organ. And those um, those field effects seem to be, you know, functionally quite important. And, you know, we we live in a time where we have um, a bit of a kind of a chemical molecular bias where we think about biology and even psychology um in primarily the frame of looking at molecules and molecular me- mechanisms and chemicals and how they affect those processes. And I'm learning more and more um that you know the impact of big business, big pharma in terms of this paradigm is pervasive. Uh, big pharma is the most powerful business in the world nowadays, you know, lobbying-wise and in terms of medical you know studies, et cetera. So the notion that electromagnetic field effects are important possibly even more important than just direct molecular and chemical effects is a difficult one to get through because we live in this world of looking at things in terms of molecular uh, mechanisms um, so it's, it's definitely kind of growing again in in terms of popularity and acceptance um, but there's definitely a lot of headwinds
0: Absolutely. That, that kind of is a great segue to the next section. What kind of pushback have you gotten? Because there's been um, this field has been kind of on that Eastern side of medicine for a, a long time. And some people get into some weird stuff um, and it's, it's not really considered medicine or valuable to the field of science. However, it seems like as of late um, people like yourself and your partner there are, are really pushing, the bounds of what we know about this frequency and or about this, uh, this research, uh, like you're saying, making it empirical, how much mm-hmm. back have you gotten as you've been pursuing this? Um,
1: it's hard to quantify, but I can certainly, you know, give some concrete examples. We right now are, uh, um, Leading a a research topic for a journal called the Front, Frontiers in Human Neuroscience.
0: Oh, that's my favorite journal. And, that's like my daily reading.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. um And we're basically, you know, dealing with a peer review process, and our topic is electromagnetic field theories of consciousness, opportunities and obstacles. That's the full title. And so, peer review. I'm not sure if you know this or your listeners know. Peer review is a process where um, Basically, scholars will submit a paper, and then if it's deemed to get through you know, the first gating process by the editors, it's sent out to other scholars in the field to review it and give their feedback. Is this paper worthy of publication? Does it need you know, revisions? Or is it just crap and needs to be thrown away? Um, we are dealing with peer review right now for a few papers in this topic that we think are quite good papers, but the peer reviewers are saying, no, no, no. Problems are too large. Uh, we recommend rejection. And a lot of this is subtle and, you know, complicated. But the basic hurdle we're seeing right now is that obviously to have an electromagnetic theory of consciousness requires you accept that it's EM fields. Again, electromagnetic fields are causally important. Right. They have a function. that premise alone is challenged by a lot of people in the mainstream community for neuroscience and even philosophy of mind the you know dominant paradigm right now is what's generally called you know the spike code or you know heavy and learning um you know neurons that wire together fire together etc it's all based on neural um firing patterns and we are not suggesting those firing patterns are unimportant of course they're extremely important they're the basis for how the brain functions we're suggesting though and this is the premise for any em field theory of consciousness is that the field effects produced by those firing patterns both at the local level and the global level in the brain and the body as a whole like we talked about earlier are causally potent they're causally important they have a functional role so just that that idea alone is not widely accepted. Most people in the community seem to think that those field effects are either epiphenomenal, meaning they have no causal role, they're just like the, you know, the heartbeat itself, the sound of the heartbeat, doesn't seem to have much functional role in our body. It's just an epiphenomenon of the pounding of the heart to push blood. Now you could of course look at that example and you say, well, actually the sound of the heartbeat seems to have a role in comforting babies when you hold the baby against your breast. But that's not part of the function of the heart, per se. That's a secondary function. So in terms of the EM field effects and their role in consciousness, we are suggesting as a working hypothesis that those field effects are, in fact, maybe not only um, causally potent. We think they might be the primary locus of consciousness because they're global effects. And so to have you know a rapidly changing, integrated, unified consciousness like we have right now, you and I speaking, you know, we're taking a lot of information. There is a unified moment um, in each moment of our waking consciousness that doesn't seem achievable with neural firing alone, given the neural firing takes quite a bit of time to get across the brain. It seems like there's a, a more rapid integration process. And the field effects, the local and global field effects seem pretty, uh ripe to be explored as a mechanism for that unification in each moment Um, i'll go one layer deeper it's interesting to to recognize that vertebrate brains meaning you know backbone animals have a lot of what's called glia and myelin myelin is a wrapping around axons and dendrites which rapidly increases um, the speed of those signals traveling in the neurons and dendrites. Without the myelin, it's you know an order of magnitude slower. Invertebrates don't have myelin. Um, and so it appears that vertebrates have discovered a really interesting biological tool to achieve far more rapid consciousness. Um, and it makes sense when you look around that vertebrates move a lot faster, we do a lot more interesting things than invertebrates do typically. With perhaps um, cephalopods being the interesting exception, you know, squid and octopus are of course invertebrates. You know, they seem to have a pretty advanced consciousness, uh, particularly octopi. Um, so none of the you know biology finds different ways to achieve um, information flows and complexity. But uh, in terms of you know your question about the pushback, um, we are definitely having a hard time, in general, um, getting people to take seriously the notion that the EM field effects are not only causally potent, but may even be the main game in town in terms of complex consciousness.
0: So let's, uh, let's put that into an example. So like, let's say you and I are in our room right now. Um, we start up a conversation and those vibes that we've talked about before, um, that you can vibe with certain other people and not other people <laughs> um, have, that's could be resonance um, what you're saying. So we're exchanging information. Our neurons are firing synapses, all, that, all the fun stuff. Um, as they're firing, the effect of the snaps firing, the neurons transferring is creating a certain vibrational frequency. And if those vibrational frequencies inside of us and around us are aligned, then there's more information flowing and there's typically better vibes. Did I get the, that old, kind of right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean,
1: basically when you have, um, you know, different resonators, different oscillators at different frequencies, if they're chaotic, you have very minimal information flow, right? Because it's kind of like this is going this speed and this uh, this speed and you get very minimal information flow through the system. When those oscillators are at the same frequency or a nested binary frequency, then you have far more rapid information flow through that system.
0: Huh. So you're really challenging today's narrative again with how information is passed between person to person. And that's why you get a lot of pushback.
1: Well, yeah, we're suggesting that there's other pathways that are, you know, causally important. Um, And, you know, a lot of this is demonstrable, um, but the question is, in any complex system like the brain, which is obviously, you know, perhaps the most complex system we know of in the universe, um, it's a lot of work to kind of, you know, parse all this information and figure out what's really going on. So it's very early days, you know, and we we are looking at the, the EM field hypothesis as a working hypothesis. We're not saying necessarily it's true because, you know, science doesn't work like that we're putting it out there as an idea and looking to test it, you know, so if it comes in that supports it, then we'll consider that hypothesis to be, you know, a supported hypothesis, but nothing's ever proven in science. We can only support or disprove. So it will be, you know, process in many years and many, many experiments to, to get to the place where we can actually feel some confidence in that working hypothesis.
0: Well, you seem to be at the very front of this. Um, this is a very beginning thing. And uh, some of the, greatest discoveries when you look back at pretty much anything, our solar system, you know, Galileo, everybody thought he was crazy and there was a whole lot of of pushback then it didn't take, you know, probably 100, 200 years later, did we actually find out that a lot of these crazy ideas then when the scientists were presenting them were actually true. And sometimes it takes Mm -hmm. generations for these things to take root. It can sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It just, it seems like, this could be the missing link to a lot of questions a lot of people have and the uh thread that kind of ties in together a lot of the different spheres of medicine and science we have today i think you
1: may be right you know we'll see it definitely is a unifying um idea across various fields and like i mentioned you know the body electric and electric brand are two great books that are looking at these these phenomena um in a pretty comprehensive way and the more i learned too i mean it's not maybe it is an accident but i also work in my in my day job as a lawyer on green power primarily so looking at how to electrify the world and it's maybe just an accident that in my work in neuroscience is now looking primarily at electrical and magnetic phenomena but maybe it's not an accident who knows but um definitely there's there's a lot there you know it's a fairly new science when you when you consider The march of science, you know, like you said, I mean, really we're looking at the 1800s as kind of the dawn of electrical science, you know, with Maxwell and Faraday, et cetera. So it's still fairly early days. And when you think about it, it's, I think, tricky for a lot of people to kind of get their heads around it because when you're talking about these phenomena, they're often not things you can see. You can't usually see electricity, right? You can't see magnetic fields. You see their effects. Lightning is the effect, not not the actual electricity itself. Uh, Magnetic fields you can see with iron filings that, you know, cause certain patterns in the iron filings. But we are conditioned by biology to believe what we can see directly. We can see, arguably, molecules, you know, with some help, of course. Um, But we we, we think more clearly about stuff and things in the world that are matter and stable when we talk about field effects that are kind of more fluid and wiggly and evanescent, it's hard conceptually to kind of realize that, well, they're actually all connected. Of course, all matter has associated fields. That's not controversial, but it's still hard to get your head around when you're thinking about look the world is a system of fields with stuff that looks like solid objects in it, but it's all a system of connected fields.
0: Well, I'm I'm curious why this has been such a hard thing for you to to push through because even the idea of dark matter, um, in space, you know, we, we can't see it, but we know it's there. We know it because it affects other things, stars, planets, uh, orbits, all that. So I'm curious why something like dark matter is more accepted based on how it's effect on other objects, but rather electromagnetic fields in the, um, in the human way is more, uh, harder to get your brain around.
1: Yeah. It's a good question. Um, You know, I won't delve into it, but I, I'm not convinced personally that dark matter is real. We haven't really found uh, direct evidence after 40, 50 years of looking, but I, I acknowledge fully it is a mainstream theory, and most cosmologists think it is probably real, even without the data, solid data to back it up yet. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it's basically, it's hypothesized based on its effects, and by definition, you can't see it, right? Uh, it's dark matter. Um, So that actually is, I think, a great example where we can um, achieve breakthroughs conceptually without having that kind of more traditional, look, show me the the stuff um, approach. So I I am confident, you know, if the data supports the EM field hypothesis moving forward, I'm confident we certainly can achieve that kind of paradigm shift in this area. Uh, But it's just, it's a slog, you know, it's decades of work and, we're trying to get some more, you know, funding to do this work. And it's not just us, of course, other folks are doing it too. Um, but it's certainly, it's a, a small part of the field right now. And we're looking to hopefully uh, get more and more folks involved in this work. Yeah.
0: Well, as we kind of wrap up, I'm kind of curious, uh, this idea of vibrations and consciousness is becoming uh, more questioned i'm my english is off today but it's being questioned a lot more um there's been movies about it, something like even transcendence uh with johnny depp where you can upload your consciousness into a computer mainframe uh that may never happen i don't know <laughs> but i'm kind of curious your thoughts and all the research that you've done where do you see this idea if it took root today in 300 years where do you think this idea could lead to mm-hmm yeah, well, I
1: mean, that's a great example right there where I think there's an acceptance that um, if you are able to um, mirror the brain's organizational structure in silicon and, you know, essentially upload that pattern into a computer, the premise for movies like Transcendent Man, et cetera, is that you would then have that person's personality you know, in silicon. Um, what we're suggesting with our work and this EM field hypothesis is that it's not just a matter of information mimicry. It would have to be a matter of EM field mimicry. And so today's computers don't generate based on the EM field effects per se. They generate, they, they operate based on logic gates. Um, you know, it's a different way it's what they call a feed forward network and so without work and you know a colleague of ours colin hales in australia is working on this directly where he's trying to build chips that produce em fields like our neurons do and not just you know mimicking the neural firing patterns but mimicking the field effects and the idea is that if the em field hypothesis is correct you could mimic Um, the patterns of human consciousness in terms of neural firing and information flows. But if you are not mimicking the EM field effects more globally, then you're going to have just um, a computer that mimics consciousness, not an actual conscious computer. Um, And so Chris Koch talks about this also. What's that?
0: That's basically the future of AI.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, I mean, you can have AI without consciousness, right? You can have smart machines that aren't conscious. And that's what we have today, like a, a, a smart chess machine. I think no one's suggesting it's conscious in any way. It's just good at you know, certain patterns of, of a represented chess board. Um, so they're a bit different. And Christoph Koch in his book, The Feeling of Life Itself*, which came out a couple of years ago, does a great job of distinguishing intelligence from consciousness. Um, they really can be entirely separate, and they are in terms of machines we're creating today and computers we're creating today. But if you do create... Computer architecture, which he, which he calls neuromorphic, um, then you, which means you have feedback. You have not just feed-forward networks; you have feedback networks that actually have recurrent architecture, uh, reentrant architecture like in the brain. Then perhaps those architectures could lead to truly conscious machines. My colleague Colin Hales would go even further and say you need to have neuromimetic architecture, which is what I guess mentioned, where they're actually they're creating the EM field effects that we see. In brains, and using those to compute not just information flows. So here's an interesting, you know, one level one little deeper of uh, you know discussion. Um, Christoph Koch and Giulio Tononi have developed um, a theory called the Integrated Information Theory of Consciousness, and this is one of the more prominent theories right now in the field. IIT, and IIT, as the name suggests, is an information theory, and for them. Um, Consciousness would be entirely substrate independent, where you have certain information flows and certain um, patterns, particularly again with this kind of recurrent architecture, recurrent architecture. You would have higher phi as their measure of consciousness, and therefore you have more interesting consciousness in those you know more integrated and recurrent architecture um, substrates. We would say in our theory, it's not just about information flows per se; it is actually Very likely the case that you need to have EM field information pathways being used because nature seems to have utilized EM field biophysical pathways to achieve the high level of awareness and consciousness that we enjoy as mammals slash vertebrae slash humans.
0: That's amazing. I I can't wait to see what else pops up within this field and um, all the work that you guys are doing. I know you guys got to go or I know you got to go, so we'll let you go here. But thank you so much for coming on the show and I appreciate this conversation.
1: Great. Thanks, Kale. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Bye.